BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In the minds of many, spring may be king when it comes to tornadoes, but we know they can happen in any month of the year. We also know during the colder months, we tend to observe certain types of tornadoes and severe weather in favored parts of the country. Today, we will be joined by severe weather experts, Dr. Harold Brooks from the National Severe Storms Laboratory and Dr. Victor Gensini from Northern Illinois University to discuss severe weather during the winter and why it presents unique sets of challenges. Let's dive in. Thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good to be here. Great to be here, Marshall. Well, these are two veterans of Weather Geeks. If you've watched the Weather Geeks TV show or listened to past episodes of the podcast, both of these names should be very familiar to you. But just as a reminder, in case you don't know them, I'm going to ask the question I ask every Weather Geeks guest out of the gate. Harold and Victor, how did you become a Weather Geek? And we'll start with Harold. Well, I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, I was physics and math undergraduate and was going to go to graduate school, got invited on a summer program to model climate. And I actually got into this as a climate modeler and then needed to move on and happened to find a place where I started doing thunderstorms. How about you, Victor? Yeah, I'll keep mine brief. Uh, I actually started out in engineering. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, a tornado ripped through my, my hometown and actually hit my high school. And I think I changed my major the very next day. <laughs> Didn't really have an idea that I wanted to pursue research until actually a summer internship where I was lucky enough to be paired up with Harold. And uh, that really turned my career toward understanding what was research was all about. And then really ultimately decided to pursue a faculty position and continue doing research and uh, teaching. And they, they are two of the top experts in the world. Uh, these are names that when the media contacts me about severe weather questions, I said, talk to Harold or Victor. So uh, you will see them quoted all over the place. Uh, even before we started the podcast, they were talking shop about a, about a scientific paper of some type. So uh, these are the folks to go to when you want to know about severe weather. And we're going to dive all into it. But let me give you a little of their background. Uh, Dr. Harold Brooks has a PhD in atmospheric sciences from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He joined the National Severe Storms Lab in 1991. He uh, was elected as a fellow of the AMS in 2010 and elected a fellow of the Royal Met Society in 1996. And he's also received the Department of Commerce Silver Medal. Dr. V Victor Gensini has his PhD University of Georgia, so I've got to slip in a go dogs. Uh, his specific research endeavors have covered everything from extreme weather and climate. He has a specific focus on severe convective storms, synoptic mesoscale meteorology, applied climatology, GIS, and more. Uh, he actually, I know he takes people out on storm chasing tours and, and also research and teaching expeditions as well. And he's probably become one of the most cited and quoted severe weather experts in the United States in recent years. So with that backdrop, I want to kind of come right to the current. I know, Harold, you're based in the Norman, Oklahoma area. We're recording this on March 1st. 
just this week, there was a nocturnal tornado. I, I was it a QLCS, a quasi-linear convective system or a, some type of system along those lines. Tell us a little bit about, and, and you're sort of wavering there, so maybe that's not the exact description, but I know people in the heart of the National Weather Center universe, if you will, experienced the nocturnal tornado. Tell us a little bit about what went on with that particular event. Well, it was an interesting event, and it, it's kind of a rare event for the for the Norman area. Uh, we we had a we had a well forecast, very strong large scale system coming out to where we were uh, well prepared for a, a sustained high wind event with possibility of embedded tornadoes. Uh, but just as any other place in the country, when the tornado uh, happens at nine fifteen at night and develops very rapidly out of the out of the line, it was I think it was, as I look at it, it's probably an embedded supercell within a line. So whether it's QLCS or supercell is, is perhaps doesn't matter to anybody who actually lived there, but uh, it evolved, you know, it spun up within a less than a volume scan from not much to uh, F2 damage. And it happens after dark. It's really hard to, even for somebody like me to be really prepared for, oh, it's happening this minute and we should be doing something right now that we probably should have done several minutes ago. I, I saw some conversations on someone's social media page involving you. They were talking about lead times for mm -hmm. tornadoes. And I, I think there was a question about lead times for tornadoes that are associated with these types of storms. And, and I remember you saying something like, I think the average time is what, 14, 15 minutes these days? If, if we warn in advance, uh, and a little over half of all tornadoes are warned in advance. The average lead time is, is 15 minutes for those. Uh, one of the issues in, in is how we define what lead time is, is, uh, is, a, is a problem. And a lot of that has to do with that we're less likely to warn in advance on a QLCS tornado. So if you include the zeros, then that makes the lead time for that less. But it may just be the fact that we're it's harder to recognize them. Uh, and in fact, the, the tornado on Sunday night, now that they've done the damage survey, the tornado begins before the warning came out on Sunday. Now, it, the warning was out before it got to a populated area, but the tornado had been on the ground for a couple of minutes. Um, so, yeah, on average, we're about 15 minutes now. If we're going to put a warning on it, we, and like I said, we warn on a little more than half of all tornadoes in advance. Now, Victor, I want to sort of read something and come to you for your thoughts on this question. And it's a loaded question in some ways, but March 2022 is the most tornadic March on record with over 230 tornadoes observed. This past January, a preliminary count exceeded 150. And we just had a fairly insane February setup over central Oklahoma, as we were just talking about. Yeah. So from your perspective, what's going on uh, in the last couple of years or at least this year? Yeah, well, again, as you said, we're recording on March 1st. Typically, to about this day, we'd expect about 100 tornado, preliminary tornado reports across the U.S. We're, we're over 200. Um, so we're definitely running above average. And uh, again, recording this with a moderate risk tomorrow, uh, March 2nd, across the Arklatex region. And we're, we're going to be on the cold side of that up in Chicago with potentially up to 10 inches of snow. So this is another powerful exotropical system. This is really hallmark of the La Nina, the atmosphere is still um, feeling the effects of this third year La Nina. La Nina doesn't always mean more tornadoes. We don't have a significant sample size that we can really draw from to say that every La Nina produces above average tornado activity across the US. But these, these numerous and frequent and strong extratropical cyclones that have been really traversing across the United States over the last 60 days, 
have have produced, um, you know, tornado counts, and I, I expect that really to continue over the next couple of weeks. Um, so, to me, that coupled with the very warm uh, water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, they're four to six degrees Fahrenheit above average, depending on specifically where you are. And that's really because of a very strong uh, high pressure system that's been really over Florida, seeing record temperatures, 80s, 90s um, in the Florida region. And so as long as this time of the year, as long as you have that warm water, anytime you get some southerly flow to bring that moisture up into the central US, you often see um, enhanced tornado counts. And in fact, that was the paper that Harold and I were, were discussing earlier um, is sort of this relationship between large scale temperature and weather patterns and and uh, and tornado counts. And in fact, one of the strongest signals that we see is in the in the, in the cool season. Um, and that's kind of what we saw so far. Carol, you wanted to just jump in here. Yeah, I want to say, and one of the things that, uh, as Victor mentioned, we've had the strong intertropical cyclones coming across. But one of the key things that's related to that the warm Gulf temperatures then is the fact that we haven't had cold fronts coming all the way down across the Gulf. Uh, typically in the winter time. When we get the strong extratropical cyclones, you get the cold front that comes across that cools the Gulf water, and it takes a while for the Gulf to recover. Well, that hasn't been a problem. Uh, the and, you know, if the cold fronts don't make it to the coast, then the Gulf's open for business all the time to bring up warm water. Yeah, and the, I, the, 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 the yeah the, the the dew points, right? I mean, we we talk about the dew points measure of how humid the air is, and you know if you look at the Gulf Coast right now, especially with this upcoming extratropical system, the dew points are in the low 70s. I mean, those are types of dew points we typically see in mid to late May, not you know early March or late February. So, the, the Gulf is primed, and anytime we get one of these systems that that you know allows that warm sector to to flood north, um, we're going to be dealing with this this week, um, and I expect more tornado counts. Um, which would be tomorrow on March 2nd. Yeah, I, I'm going to come back to the Gulf as well about it being primed uh, because you you all did a really nice job of talking about the meteorological context of why it's so primed this year. And we've certainly had 80 degree temperatures here in Atlanta already in February. Um, but I then want to revisit a bit later the priming of the Gulf from a different perspective related to climate. I want to come back to that later. You all both talked about we're, we're in March. Again, we're recording this in early March. It's technically meteorological spring starting as we're recording this, but it's from a calendar standpoint, still winter. Talk about, and I'll start with Harold here. How is the winter severe season different from the rest of the year? Well, in general, I, mean, I think there are a couple of things to me to think about physically. One of them is that in the in the winter time, because of the difficulty of bringing the ingredients together for getting severe weather, we tend to have large scale synoptic processes taking place. And one of the things about those is they don't really care about the time of day very much. Uh, when we think about spring in the in the plains, for instance, you know, almost everything is late afternoon, early evening. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're the conditions are almost there all the time, and we just need maybe a little bit of daytime heating, maybe a little bit of you know a little bit of things to happen to get things. Well, in the winter time, we needed the atmosphere work harder. We need to have these strong extratropical cyclones bringing everything together. Uh, the other thing is the fact that since the hours of daylight are shorter, there's a lot more time for things to happen overnight. I mean, the a 9 p.m. tornado. While that would be late for us in in the Oklahoma City area, it's not that late. And you're if and if it's in May, and so like that wouldn't have been the thing that happened on Sunday wouldn't have been quite that big of a deal. But the tornadoes in western Oklahoma, 
that were, you know, at six o'clock, seven o'clock, they were already after dark. And that's just not something we tend to experience very much in this part of the country. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Gensini from Northern Illinois University and Dr. Harold Brooks from the National Severe Storms Laboratory of NOAA. And we're talking winter severe weather season, and we've certainly had our share here in 2023 already. I, I actually want to sort of go to Victor here. Victor has expertise in meteorology and also a geographic perspective as well. In terms of the winter season, is there a favored geography in terms of where we expect the severe weather? Yeah, really, you know, the further you get away from the Gulf of Mexico, the really the harder it is this time of the year to experience severe weather events. If you go back to um, what Harold was suggesting, the atmosphere has to work harder. These extratropical systems have to be very dynamic, and that that involves advection, bringing, really bringing air from one location to a new location. And this time of the year, from an ingredients perspective, if you're baking a cake or if you want to create a severe storm with a tornado, um, we have all the ingredients necessary, except for one typically this time of the year, which is instability. And you need that moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. And so this time of the year, it's, it's really the Mid-South, the Gulf Coast areas. Florida often sees a significant number of tornadoes in January and February. And then of course the annual cycle will take over and the, the migration towards the plains and further north will occur as we go through the annual cycle here. But for this time of the year, it's really, the Mid-South and the Gulf Coast states that often see a majority of the severe weather activity. And if you want to see a nice climatology of that, the Storm Prediction Center on their website usually has some great graphics to kind of sort of represent where we expect those storms. I want to take advantage of both of your expertise since I have you on Weather Geeks to talk about, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, so I'll give you the context. There was a tornado, series of tornadoes here in the Atlanta area in January. And Keith Stellman, the meteorologist in charge at NWS Peachtree City, uh, they did, and his folks did a really nice assessment of it. I've written about it recently in Forbes, and it's on their websites and things about satellite tornadoes. They they had a circumstance where just southeast, southwest of Atlanta near Griffin, Georgia, there were actually several tornadoes sort of oscillating around sort of a main tornado. And it wasn't 
a suction voracy circumstance at all. So, uh, Harold, first of all, talk to us about what these suction vortices are within larger storms and how this perhaps differs, as I understand, from a situation where you have these satellite tornadoes. Well, typically, when we think of a, of a suction vortex, that's a uh, many that's a very small uh, spot of, of intense rotation inside of a, a single tornado. Uh, and what you will frequently hear referred to as, as multiple vortex tornadoes. And, and all tornadoes at some point in their life, almost all of them have at least some component of, of being multiple vortex. And the, but these suction vortices are where perhaps the most intense winds are within them. In other cases, what we see when we think of a satellite tornado, it's there's the larger scale circulation around the, that includes the tornado, the low level mesocyclone. And this is now, we have multiple centers of, of, of intense rotation uh, that produce their own tornadoes. And they're, I, you tend to think of them maybe as a little bit more distinct geographically. Uh, and lots of times, I think when I think of satellite tornadoes, perhaps the, one of the classic cases was the May 3rd, 1999 uh, tornadic storm in Oklahoma. They went through Oklahoma City in which there was a large violent tornado. And then occasionally, you know, a couple of miles away, still part of that same parent mesocyclone, there was this slightly, there was this weaker tornado that, w- that was certainly still damaging that might be a couple of miles away from the, the main vortex, but it was clearly not part of the main vortex. Uh, and that's what we, when we tend to think of satellite vortices, it's there's, whether it's a, it's, there's, they're their own separate circulation center inside maybe a, the weaker mesocyclone level, whereas a suction vortex is concentrated around that main intense tornado. Yeah, that's a really nice geek out. And one of the things that uh, the folks here, weather service, like we don't, we haven't really seen that here, at least in our time in the South, they're more common out in the Great Plains region. I want to come to Victor, because both of you have been involved in some research generally that has talked about shifts. Now, just I've seen some bad narratives out there on your own research, because there are people like, oh, yeah, the South gets more tornadoes now. That's not what your research says. Um, but that's how it's been reported at times. So talk about the research that you both have been involved with in terms of the relative shift in activity to the South. I don't, I'm not going to use the term alleys. I mean, I know, and Victor, I've heard you talk about the reasons why you, you may don't, maybe not, do not like the terms alleys, but talk about the research that you all have both done on the shift. Because again, the Great Plains area still gets the most tornadoes in terms of sheer numbers. You're talking about a relative shift. So go tell us a little bit more about that. And is the shift seen in the winter as well? Yeah, this is a, a multifaceted uh, topic. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and we've got time yeah. on the podcast. I mean, I was, I was, for example, Raz, doing a, an interview yesterday and, and somebody was like, oh, you're known for, you know, understanding the tornado alleys in a new location. I'm like, that's not the case, right? That's not true. We're not seeing a shift in tornado alley. In fact, I, as you mentioned, I'm not a big fan of the word alley at all for anything. Um But the idea here is that if you look at a time series at any location in Memphis, in Oklahoma City, in Atlanta, Georgia, the time series is increasing. In other words, we see an increasing trend in the number of F1 and greater tornadoes in a place like Memphis or Tupelo or Atlanta or even Chicago. If you look at a time series in Oklahoma City, it's pretty stagnant. Not a lot of change over the last 40 years. They get a lot more tornadoes. And in the aggregate, if you draw a 100 mile radius around Oklahoma City, than Atlanta or Tupelo. Um, 
but it's not increasing. And it's actually decreasing in a place like Dallas-Fort Worth or South Central Texas, Abilene, or the high plains of, of uh, the Texas panhandle. And so it's what, really what do not- you say, before you go on, now I hate to interrupt yeah. you, but I really want to get this question in. What do you say to your critics of your work that suggest that you're seeing more observational biases or better observation of the storms? Yeah, absolutely. That That is part of the increase in detection in F1, but it's all we're also seeing it in the environmental ingredients. That's the real fingerprint. If you don't see that in the environments, then it would suggest this is just a detection issue. And I think it's it's both. We're seeing an increase in detection with QLCS tornadoes, especially since the dual pole era, where we have things like the tornado detection algorithm that uses correlation coefficient and so on to detect debris. But we're also seeing it in a significant tornado parameter in the environment, which is really something that you would use on a day-to-day basis if you were forecasting tornadoes to try to understand how favorable the environment is. And that too, follows a similar spatial trend to what we're seeing in in terms of the increase um, in the favorability for tornado environments, especially in the Mid-South. And of course, that's a big deal. You know, people ask, why is this important? Why do I care that it's increasing? And even if the increase isn't that big, which it's really not in the, in the aggregate of statistics, but that increase does change your physical risk of seeing a tornado in the long term, which is actually very small anyway at an individual point. But if we have more assets, more people, more vulnerable population where this increasing trend is occurring, the result is sort of what you see is an increase in losses, right? An increase in insured losses, an increase in injuries and fatalities um, because of the vulnerable population that we have in these in these uh, uh, increasing areas. Yeah, Harold, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. But I will echo the fact that here in the southeast, we do have an extremely vulnerable socioeconomically marginalized communities. Even the infrastructure is not necessarily designed for the uh, dealing with a new generation of more active uh, tornado storm, tornadic storms. Harold, um, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, a couple of things. One of them is I don't think for an individual, the changes Victor and I are, have, have reported on make much any difference at all in your individual decision making. But they might make a difference, say, if I'm at a state emergency manager level, uh, where now if, you're, if, we cha- if we're changing the number of events by 5 to 10%, you know, we're talking budget now because I have to be responding to a lot more things. And to, and the biggest difference in the in the southeast uh, population wise than the plains is rural population densities. Rural population densities in Alabama are 10 people per square kilometer. And you go out to western Oklahoma and it's less than one tenth of a person per square kilometer. So you could put a really long track tornado down in western Oklahoma and you hit one building. Uh, that's you can't put you cannot have a tornado happen in the southeast that's on the ground for more than a couple of minutes without it hitting some hitting something. Uh, and I'll, I will say also that you know the the whole thing about t- Tornado Alley, I regret one figure in my career more than any other in a paper, uh, and that was we were attempting to explain why people call the Plains Tornado Alley, not saying this is Tornado Alley, and a lot of it has to do. With the thing about the plains that's special is that there's a very, very strong annual cycle and a very, very strong diurnal cycle. Uh, and that's not true in the southeast. Tornadoes happen you know, any time of year, any time of day. And that appears to be something that at least somehow subconsciously we take into account. And maybe the fact that the fact that we do have that strong cycle, a lot of our great photographs are all from the plains because it's you know when to be there 
and it's late in the evening, it's visible. And there aren't very many trees in the way. Exactly. And could could either of you talk about, because this is a question that comes up, I recently saw it in an episode of Earth Storm, which is a new series on Netflix uh, dealing with tornadoes. And we always get the question about why the central U.S. is sort of the tornado capital of the world. And you often hear this, well, it's the clashing of the air masses sort of description. It's sort of, um, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is here and you got the continental polar air coming from here and the maritime trauma. And I, I, it's a little more complex than that. Maybe that's a part of it. But uh, Victor, start the discussion about why this particular geography, meaning the United States, is t- particularly tornado prone more so than, say, Europe or Asia. Yeah, well, if you start from a global perspective and look to see where tornadoes have been reported, or at least where our model suggests they would be possible, what the first thing you kind of see is downwind of north-south oriented mountain chains tend to be favored areas because of cyclogenesis. We have low pressure systems that form there. And additionally, the air coming over the mountains on its way down is descending and typically creates a drier air mass that can can enhance uh, the lapse rates that we need for instability. But the central U.S. specifically has something going for it, which is its proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. When you come down those those north-south oriented mountain chains, in our case, the Rockies. And so that cyclogenesis, if you think of your flow around a, a low pressure system, the counterclockwise flow, that southerly wind is coming directly from um, that that Gulf of Mexico moisture source. But it's really one air mass in particular that makes the Great Plains more favorable than anywhere else. And that is this very hot and dry air mass that comes from the Mexican high plateau, the Chihuahuan Desert. It's a continental tropical, meaning it's very hot, very dry. That air mass is actually coming directly horizontal over top of that moisture at the surface and it acts just like as as a lid would on a boiling pot of water it caps the air and it provides what we call inhibition or the inability for thunderstorms to form until enough energy or enough lift can get those air parcels or those thunderstorm clouds to break through that hot and dry air mass and it's that storage of the energy that allows really eventually the strong upward release if you think about why we have tornadic storms they're just really trying to release that air, right? Release that energy buildup and energy transfer mechanism, if you will. And the the permission of that is is, is that is able to happen in the central U.S. because of that hot, dry air um, coming from from the Mexican high plateau. Um, there's a lot of things that go in, in addition at the storm scale that must happen, and it's a very Goldilocks problem, but from a large scale perspective, it's the proximity of the Gulf of Mexico to that very hot and dry air mass that can get over top of it, and that often happens in the spring, uh, yeah, as, you, as you can imagine. I think people would be surprised to know that sometimes that cap sort of initial suppression of the convection can really be a problem later in terms of severity. Also, that that hot, dry air that you're talking about from the Mexican plateau can manifest itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have thunderstorm, right? We have instability and thunderstorm activity daily in the tropics, but you don't have vertical wind shear and you typically don't have a capping mechanism to store that energy before it's released. Yeah, I mean, I I just think about the old, just, you know, like pot and the tea cow. I, I don't know. That's just my, my mind always goes back to those simple examples of energy being suppressed and then boom, it goes. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask both of you the big question.
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Harold Brooks from the National Severe Storms Lab and Dr. Victor Gensini at Northern Illinois University. And before I get to the big question that I teased in the last uh, segment, a question that comes to mind often is it's colder in the winter so why not more hail in these months? Now, again, I, I shift to hail because we're talking about severe weather and severe weather is not just tornadoes. It's hail, it's uh, gust winds over a certain mile per hour. So Harold, talk to us a little bit about sort of hail and its seasonality and that question of why we wouldn't expect more hail in the winter months. The big thing we need for hail is we need, we need lots of warm, moist air at the ground and cold, dry air aloft so we can get really strong updrafts. Uh, that's a big part of it. And it hail likes wind shear. Big hail likes to having some wind shear also. And the problem in the wintertime is that it's just, it's just too cold at the ground typically to get enough, uh, to get storms going upward. Uh, and so we tend not to get very much hail. And so hail also peaks in the springtime. Um, it continues a little bit longer than the tornado season, the, the, the sort of average tornado season. It'll continue a little bit longer into the, into the summertime, uh, but it, 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 the wintertime, there's just not enough instability to, to get anything to grow large enough to do anything that we care about. Now, we do have, occasionally, we have some interesting things. We had a, an event, a very strange event, a few weeks ago in the Oklahoma City area where it was really hard to tell what was sleet and what was, we had thunder sleet. And we possibly had hail in there, and wow. trying to figure out was this little was this little piece of ice hail or or you know or sleet was a was a problem, but none of it was you know larger than half an inch or so, so it wouldn't have done a whole lot of damage to you. It's just one of those counterintuitive questions that people often ask because they think hail and they think ice and they think winter and cold, but I mean I, I, I you're, you're and there are also people who think that hail is incredibly rare in the summertime. Right. When it's, that's, and, when it's most, yeah, that's and that's right. not remotely true. Yeah. yeah, no, I actually had to correct a friend of mine the other day in Maryland. Uh, uh, he was saying, oh, it's hailing here. Marjorie sent me a text. I was like, no, Dave, that's probably sleet. Uh, and it, it was sleet. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of those things that I see. But I want to get to the big question. And both of you have been involved in the answer to this. I mean, and Victor, you recently, I'm, I'm, I sit on the National Academy's Board of Atmospheric Sciences and, and Climate Basque. And so we've been sort of revisiting this idea of attribution, this notion that climate change is impacting today's extreme events. And the last time we issued a report back in 2016 as a part of the National Academies, what we could say about 
severe convective storms and climate change was sort of lower on the scale of conclusiveness, if you will. Uh, but based on some things I've seen you report, Victor, uh, we're starting to sort of move the needle. So talk about what we know about the link between severe weather and climate change. It is still at the low end of the scale. Um, and again, the reason for that is if you look at things like drought, flooding, just precipitation and temperature anomalies at larger scales, it's just easier to attribute these longer processes in space and time to what we know is happening, anthropogenic forcing on the climate system. Once you get down to these events that last a couple hundred yards for a few minutes at maximum, um, the attribution becomes completely, it becomes noise, it's very difficult. And so what we tend to do on the severe weather side is step away from worrying about what an individual tornado might do, what might the parent thunderstorm do, or what might the environment that produces the tornadic storm do in the future by running these climate simulations. And that still uh, creates a lot of uncertainty because the climate models themselves cannot resolve thunderstorms. They can't simulate a thunderstorm. They're just simulating, you know, is the air saturated in this grid box? Let's create precipitation sort of thing. Um, and so we can kind of get an idea from climate models what the environments might do in the future. And if you look at that literature, it basically suggests more instability, maybe perhaps less vertical wind shear. But on the days when we do have shear, we typically have more instability. So the literature right now is basically supportive of more days supportive of severe storms, including tornadoes and hail, um, and a kind of an earlier start to the season, maybe a, a little bit of a later end. But in the middle of the season, we actually see a decrease because you don't have um, a lot of wind shear present. So it's kind of like an early start and then a dip back down and then a dip back up. And with those, those two increases being uh, pretty significant in terms of the number of days. Um, so then what we try to do is say, okay, let's get away from climate models. Uh, let's take that data from those climate models, though, and we'll feed it into a model that can simulate a supercell storm, for example. Um, and when you do those simulations, the, the cliff notes from that results is, is what you kind of see two things. You see an increase in the number of severe weather days and, and simulated thunderstorms that can produce severe weather. You see an increase in the variability. So in the future, we have more years with a lot of severe weather, and we have more years with actually very little severe weather. So we kind of see a widening of this distribution. Um, and then our, our models are also continuing to suggest this increase in the Eastern US frequency and uh, with a decrease in the plains because the plains continue in our models to show a drying trend, especially on the high plains, the Texas Panhandle, West Texas, Eastern Colorado. It just continues to reinforce this kind of drought and hot, arid, desert-like conditions in those areas. And because of that, in June, July, you typically see fewer thunderstorms and less severe weather in our models um, in the future. And so we just published a paper in BAMS looking at the future of supercells, um, you know, mining through these simulations, looking for very specific rotating thunderstorms that we know produce a significant amount of the, the majority of the significant severe weather across the U.S. And so these are just one, right, one run, one climate model. We're really going to need an ensemble style of, of solutions here. And I believe we'll get there eventually. It's just going to take, you know, a lot of research groups to continue to try to make these um, simulations available. And it, it's not easy to do. This most recent project that we just published on was a two-year effort of simulations um, and multiple people 
uh, producing those simulations. So the needle is still kind of at the bottom of the chart in terms of what we understand, but it seems every year, every paper we publish, every group that we work with, we continue to kind of move that needle and uh, we still have a long way to go. And I want to just throw it a geek out term in there because he talked about the sort of feeding the higher resolution of climate models. And that's a term we use in, in the field called downscaling that Victor was talking about. And I also, I, I think there's a good lesson in what Victor just talked about in this notion that we really as scientists and as the public and as decision makers, there's a, a cascade or a scale of sort of understanding of attribution of climate change to extreme weather. So where where severe convective storms are still on the lower end of the spectrum, our, our, our understanding of heat wave, extreme rainfall events, drought, some aspects of hurricane are fairly strong in terms of climate change connections. Carol, I want to come to you because there's another aspect of the conversation we touched on earlier, and it's the temperature of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, could any potential warming associated with climate change and the Gulf of Mexico in turn fuel uh, the, the the winter season in terms of severe weather? Oh, I think absolutely. I think if the if the Gulf warms some, that obviously that obviously imp improves the chances for severe weather. It also is likely then on these years when we don't get a cold front to go across the Gulf. It just would mean that everything's even in better shape, more primed uh, than it would than it than it is normally. Uh, and there's you know there's at least some thought that perhaps if weather systems would be just a little bit further north, that increases the likelihood that the cold fronts don't make it to the Gulf. Uh, and so I think it's I, I think that I think the key word that one of the key words that Victor used was variability. Uh, and an increase in variability is I think one of the is one of the things we've I think we've seen some suggestions of it already in the severe in the severe weather community. Uh, and that also goes along with the changes in heavy rain that have been seen. Variability is a bigger thing. But the, on the attribution side, then an increase in variability makes it harder to figure out individual trends, especially on rare events. Uh, you know, so we're we're out there in the tails. And so, you know, an event that happens you know, we would think happens once every 50 years. Well, so it happened twice in 10 years. That That's still, it's hard to tell what, what went on. I think about, you know, on the, on the other extreme of things, the the uh, the February 2021 cold event that I suffered through here in Norman and my friends in Texas, and I'm still paying higher on my gas bills for the next, for the rest of my life. Uh, the the Really, the, the counterpart to that event, the, the closest thing to it was in 1899. I have no idea if those events are more likely now, less likely now than they used to be. Well, we, we've got an epi we've yeah. got a weather episode with Judah Cohen that suggests that they're more frequent now because of the breaching of the polar vortex due to climate change. But there's also some literature counter to that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's that just it's such a rare event. It's really hard to do anything yeah. statistically to say what's right. happening. That's that's correct. Last question for both of you. I, I could talk all day to both of you, but we 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 have to go here soon. But in terms of extreme or severe weather, either from an observational or modeling or even risk communication standpoint, and I'm going to ask this question to both of you: What is it that we still need that we don't have? If you were to able to make, wave your magic wand, I'll come to you first, Victor. I mean, in terms of, on the modeling front, observational front, risk communication front, as it relates to severe weather, if, if, if you had this sort of magic wand or access to the president or whomever, what is it that we need from your perspective at this point? Um, 
In this, you know, some way disagree, but from my perspective, I think we've gone as far as we can go with modeling right now. Um, we've squeezed that lemon and gotten all that lemonade, right? I'm just getting um, pulp now. <laughs> yeah. I, look, currently our operational models for severe weather are running at about three to four kilometer horizontal grid spacing. It's not clear to me that if we continue to go down this path of increasing model resolution that we're gonna see anything that is what I would consider not noise. Um, I think we need an effort for a national mesonet. I think surface observations are still absolutely 100% key to feeding these models. Of course, upper air observations that uh, are, are brought in. So things like satellite, you know, research into how we can integrate better integrate satellite data into model initialization is going to be really, really important. And if you really want to solve the tornado forecasting problem in a now casting sense, in other words, this worn on forecast idea, I think you're going to need, I think you're going to need different Doppler radar technology and, and, and perhaps a, not only a, a denser network, but an observation like a network like phase array radar that would be able to assimilate that data very, very quickly into a national system that would be rapidly updating. And again, these are ideas that are out there. People have, have done this, but I'm, I'm not of the opinion right now that increasing models is, you know, it, whether it's ensemble size or resolution, I think you're going to get a lot more bang out of your buck from things like stochastic physics and other things versus just continuing to go down this rabbit hole of increasing resolution. Yeah. That would, that yeah, would and on your point. Yeah. And on your point about radar, here in Georgia, we just brought online an X-band dual-pole Doppler radar system here at the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech that we want to sort of test in sort of in conjunction with the Weather Service radar to sort of think about some of those very issues. Harold, last word from you on what we need. Sure. This is the 30th anniversary of what I think is the single most important paper about weather forecasting that was ever written. Alan Murphy on what is the what is a good forecast? And Murphy, Murphy distinguished between quality and value. Quality of forecast is it looks like the weather event. I don't think that we're going, you know, the quality can continue to improve, but the big thing is value. Weather forecasts have no intrinsic value and they get value by being used by people to help improve their decisions. And that's not just communication, that's getting people information at a time that they actually can make a decision with that. And they actually know what their appropriate decision is because they've they've been educated before the event so that in the heat of the moment they're not making a last second decision they know uh, the forecast said this that means i should be doing this and i think that we need to spend a lot of time and a lot of resources on working on finding ways to improve the value of forecasts and i will give you the last word there any any things you want to plug though in terms of social media or places that people can follow or find you victor uh, I'm on Twitter, not as active as I used to be because I'm busy uh, being a professor, but like you, Marshall. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I occasionally post when we have new research coming out. Yeah, Harold, about it. what about you? I'm on Twitter as well. You, Someone actually said they learned something from me this morning, which is a shock to me because uh, I'm usually there just for the humor. But uh, there, when there are events happening, I think, I've, I, I think in large part my rather long-term interactions on this quality versus value subject I think that I occasionally try to weigh in. And on this event, in fact, there are questions about, you know, when was the forecast issue that someone could have actually made an actionable decision on? 
And if you are a volleyball person, you might stumble and see Harold on a volleyball You'll see court. that. You'll see me doing volleyball. As an up ref or down ref yeah, or a yeah, line judge yeah, somewhere yeah, along yeah, the way as yeah, well, because yeah. I know he. Hey, we'll be in the same conference in a year for that's, line judging. Oh, I I'll, be in, I'll be in the conference with you. That's so right. I might see you at the University of Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. A little inside ball game here. My daughter is a former volleyball. Well, she still plays volleyball, but not as competitively in more, in, anymore. And Harold is a certified volleyball ref, so. Well, that's where we have to end. And I could, again, I could talk to them all day, but before I get out of here, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Bonnie Tillotson. Bonnie hails from Virginia and helps relay local weather information to the National Weather Service office daily. While her favorite weather is sunny and warm, which helps out with the 4-H camp she's involved in, her most memorable weather event was the EF3 Appomattox tornado back in 2016. And shout out to 4-H as well. I was a big member of 4-H as a child myself. Many, many DPA projects and poultry judging was in my past. So if someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Harold and Victor, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Whenever you need it. Always a pleasure. Oh, we'll definitely call you again. Thank you all for listening. That was an ultimate geek out. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.